Good morning, everyone. I said this to the first service, uh, but we're going to have to do like a little community choir here or like a community hymn sing or something, because you guys sound awesome on that song. Uh, It's great. I love it. I recently um, asked a friend here at the church who leads a young adult men's Bible study uh, what they're currently studying. And as we talked, he told me that they had just begun a study on the book of Lamentations. And that not being a normal topic of Bible study selection or a typical book that you'd pick, I asked him why. And I assumed there was a reason. And his reply was fascinating to me. He said, you know, we were just trying to think about things in our Christian life that we weren't particularly good at, and we all agreed that we don't really know how to lament. And so we figured the book of Lamentations would teach us how to do that. And this morning, I have the privilege of beginning a new sermon series for us, not on Lamentations, but on the Psalms of Lament. And we are going to walk through six different Psalms of Lament leading up to Easter. Uh, we're going to take a break next week because we didn't figure we'd throw uh, David that, uh, you know, that pitch for his first uh, swing here in our pulpit. Uh, we figured we'd let him pick that and not give him a Psalm of Lament. Um, but then we're going to continue this through to Easter. But if we're all honest with ourselves, we don't know how to lament. I don't know how to lament. And when we come to passages in our Bible where the writer is crying out to God with complaints or begging God to do something about the evil in the world, we get uncomfortable. We don't know how to handle these passages, so we often avoid them or we read them quickly and try to move on to the next psalm where David's arms are raised and he is openly praising God. And yet, one-third of the book of Psalms are lament psalms. They're songs sung in a minor key. And these psalms are for our good. If we believe 2 Timothy chapter 3, which says that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for us. And so I think we will miss something vital if we don't look at these and see what they have to say about our Christian life. And so let's start this series this morning by looking at Psalm 13. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 13. Uh, If you're using a pew Bible there on the back of the pew, those brown ones, it'll be on page 563. 563. This is Psalm 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. And I would invite you to pray with me now that he would, in his wisdom, teach it to us. Let's pray. Lord, we confess to you that in life's hardest moments, we do not know what to pray. We don't know what to say. So Lord, I pray that as we study this psalm this morning, that you would give us a vocabulary for suffering, a way that we can speak to you 
that honors you and that moves us from a place of sorrow to a place of joy. Help us and teach us, we pray, Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, my first day of seminary is a day that is, uh, I'll, I'll never forget. It's a day that's tattooed into my memory. And, and one of the things that I remember most vividly about that day was a small group that I was a part of. So the idea was, is there was probably about 30 of us in, uh, in my mid-year class that, was, that were new students. And so um, they split us up into three small groups of like eight to 10 people uh, with a professor. And the goal would be, you guys get to know each other a little bit uh, and get to know your professor a little bit. And so I'm sitting there with, with these eight other guys, and you're going around and saying your name and where you're from, kids, that kind of stuff. And so it comes to me. I say, my name's Ben. I'm from Harrisburg. I don't have any children. We go around the circle. We laugh, exchange some jokes. Um, everybody, in a good way, wants to make a good first impression. We're all excited to start and get to know each other. But then it came time for my professor to share. And I remember clear as day, his words cut through all of the first impression jitters and the lightheartedness of each of us there. He told us his name and where he was from. And then he said this. He said, I have two children, a son who is five years old and a daughter who is in heaven with Jesus. She was stillborn last year. And it was like somebody had dropped a 200-pound blanket on top of that small group. When these moments of life come, what do you say to God? And maybe for some of you here, even just hearing that story triggers memories of a similar event in your life. Or maybe you've been struggling for a long time to find a job and provide for your family, but that job just doesn't seem to come down the pipeline. Or maybe you have prayed for the salvation of a child or a spouse or a parent for years. And as you pray, it seems like they only get harder to the good news of the gospel. Or maybe you've been watching a parent or a spouse or a loved one, or maybe even yourself it's experiencing struggle with an illness that has you in a stranglehold and won't let go no matter how many times you pray for healing. It's in these moments when words like David's here in Psalm 13 can be the healing balm for our wounded hearts. But in these moments of waiting on God to end our suffering, our tendency is to believe the lie that God doesn't love us or that God has abandoned us. When God feels far away, we are tempted to lose hope and think that he is gone for good. But Psalm 13 provides us with a blueprint for how we should approach God in times of waiting, when it feels like he's nowhere to be found. So this psalm we're going to discover answers this question for us. So this is the question that we are going to seek to answer this morning. How do we faithfully wait on God when he feels far away? How do we faithfully wait on God when he feels far away? And the psalm is split into three equal parts of two verses each and provides for us a three-part answer to this question. So we'll see this morning, how do we faithfully wait on God when he feels far away? We complain, we request, and we trust. Complain, request, trust. First, we complain in verses one and two. 
And when you hear the word uh, complain prescribed as something that you as a Christian ought to do, it might make you a bit uncomfortable. Uh, You may say, doesn't the Apostle Paul teach us in Philippians to do everything without grumbling or disputing and later on in the book to rejoice always? How do you square that with complaint? How can you tell us to complain and how can David complain in this psalm without violating these commandments of God? Is David in sin by raising these complaints? I think these are helpful questions in order to try to bring the whole counsel of the scripture to bear on this issue. But what I want to put before you this morning is that the language of lament given to us in the Psalms is how we give voice to our pain and move into rejoicing. Lament is the pathway to joy. But in order for us to lament, we have to be honest about our emotions before the Lord. Now, in these two verses, David asks the question, how long, four times. And we don't know the details of David's situation that gives rise to this psalm, but we do know that David was experiencing trouble on every side. So if you look at the end of verse 2, you see David has enemies that are coming against him. So oftentimes, David, as the king of this nation, Israel, you read about it in the Psalms or in the historical books, David had enemies coming against him. And this was one of those situations. He has struggle coming out at him from the outside. Then at the beginning of verse 2, you read, he also has struggle coming at him from the inside. He's facing inner turmoil. His heart is weighted down with sorrow. David was experiencing what we might label today as depression. His sorrows lasted all day long. Have you ever experienced sorrow like that? A sorrow that grabs you by the neck the moment you open your eyes in the morning and won't let go all day long. But foundational to his struggle, though, despite the struggle from without and from within, is David's feeling that God has abandoned him in his situation. Let me read verse 1 again for us. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? See, the root cause of David's suffering and sorrow is that he feels like God has turned his face away from him. Now, in the Bible, the face of God is the place of God's blessing and relational favor. Right, think about that uh, blessing that the priests used to say over the people Israel that we sometimes use at the end of our service to bless and commission you all. Right? The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. The face of God is the place of face-to-face, friend-to-friend fellowship with God. And if you read the scriptures, David experienced this at a deep level, I think more than anybody else we see in the scriptures. David knew the character and promises of God. But here in this moment, David feels like God has turned his face of friendship aside. And so let's return to our original question then. Is David wrong to complain boldly to God? Uh, Let's just take the word complain out for a second. Maybe that'll help us out. And just think about what he says. 
Do these words of David, these questions of David, make you blush? Do you find that your knee-jerk reaction to these words is to kind of wince and tense up and say, well, that might be fine for David, but I would never pray this way, and you kind of distance yourself from those words? I remember uh, talking to a group of, of friends of mine some time ago about this reality And my one friend whose family has been through uh, a lot of terrible circumstances in his upbringing uh, talked about one time he remembered when he talked to his dad about this and said, Dad, how did you talk to God when our life was so hard? What did you say? And I remember this clear as day. He he said something to this effect. I'm not going to say it word for word, but his dad responded something to this effect. He said, I just tell God honestly how I'm feeling, no matter how ugly it is. He already knows what I'm thinking. It's better for me to take it to him than to leave it in my heart and let it rot me. God is bigger than me. He can handle it. You see, when we neglect to honestly lament, when we neglect to honestly bring our emotions and our complaints before God, there are two negative results that can occur in our hearts. So the first is that we drown in despair. So if we leave these lies in our heart, lies that, says, that say, God doesn't love me, God isn't good, God isn't in control, God doesn't keep his promises, if we allow those to stay in our hearts and do not give voice to them, they will eat us from the inside. You will drown in despair and maybe even grow to resent God. But on the other side, There are those of us who, because we don't feel like we can say these things to God, we live in denial. We don't actually bring our real human emotions and experiences before God and lay them at his feet. So we put a happy face on and quote unquote rejoice always, but never honestly deal with our emotions towards God. We never let the truth of God pierce through the exterior of ourselves into our soul and actually deal with our emotions. We run the risk, if we do this, of being shallow, surface-level people who never trust God with our whole selves. And the alternative between despair and denial for the Christian is lament. The alternative for us is to bring our honest complaints before God. And and notice this, even just bringing our complaints before God is in and of itself an act of faith, right? The faithless don't bring their complaints before God. The faithless person doesn't actually wrestle with how to believe that God is good and in control when life is spiraling out of control. It takes faith to bring these complaints to God. Lamenting our complaints is how we are able to rejoice in all circumstances, as the Apostle Paul says. And you see, if we look at the Psalms of Lament across the scripture, as we're going to give a little snapshot of, I hope you see the trajectory of the Psalms of Lament are to move you from a place of sorrow to a place of joy. And lamenting our complaints honestly before God is how that happens. So church, My encouragement to you is not to hide your true self from the one who knows you way better than you know yourself. 
Even when he feels far away, turn to him and tell him your complaints. Ask him bold questions based upon what you know to be true about his goodness and his promises towards his people. And this is really hard and feels overwhelming at first. But that's the beauty of why God gave us the scriptures and gave us the Psalms of Lament. So in the moments when you don't know what to pray or what to say, let this book frame your prayers. Use Psalm 13. Cry out to God with these words. This is not, mind you, and this scripture helps with this, this is not an invitation for you to be perpetually angry at God. But this is an invitation to work through your anger and other emotions honestly before God on the pathway to hope. That is what lament does. So how are we to faithfully wait on God when he feels far away? We're to complain. We're also to request. This is what I see in verses Three to four, David moves from making his complaints known to God to boldly asking God to intervene. Let's read verses three and four again so they're fresh on our minds here. He says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, and lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. After turning to God and airing his grievances, David then makes bold requests of God. And notice there's three requests that David makes here in this text. If you look at verse 3, he asks God to consider him, which actually could be translated, pay attention to me, God, look at me, God, see me. Consider him to answer him and to light up his eyes, which is an expression that means David wants God to restore to him both physical and spiritual strength. Essentially, what David is asking God who feels far away from him, he's asking God to turn his face back towards him, to see what's going on in his situation, and to act on his behalf. Now, like I said earlier, we, we don't know David's historical situation or the exact nature of his suffering, but we do know that for David, this suffering felt like it was the end of his life. Notice the high stakes in this for David. In verse 3, he asks God to give him physical and spiritual strength back because he feels like he is on the verge of death. And in verse 4, David says that he wants God to help so that his enemies don't think that they've prevailed over him. Now, for us as modern Westerners, when we think enemy, we don't really have a category for that, right? The closest thing that you have to an enemy is that person that you quarrel with at the office that you try to have to make peace with, but really you just don't like some of their quirks and they don't like some of yours. David had real enemies, people that were trying to kill him as the king of Israel, but also, as the king of Israel, David's enemies, when they, if they were to conquer over him, David's enemies were to have conquered over God. So you see, David's not just praying for his own honor. He is praying for the name of God to be upheld by praying against his enemies here. But here's the bottom line that I want us to see from these two verses. God knows the stakes of your suffering. God knows 
that whether it's physical enemies chasing you down in the desert or anxiety and depression hunting you down, there are mornings where your heart is in such despair you can hardly get out of bed. And God just doesn't want us to tell him about our situation. He wants us to ask him boldly to intervene. He doesn't get offended by big asks. And maybe you think your situation isn't that big of a deal or it isn't serious enough to ask God about it. But let me just ask you, for those of you in the room here who are, uh, who are parents, if you are a parent and your child asks you for water in bed when they're three or to come pick them up after they've been in a bad car wreck at age 18, no matter what that range is, you want them to ask you for help. In your darkest times, God wants you to ask him for help. He hears you. He knows the difficulty of your circumstances. He wants you to ask him for help. And you have his ear. And so as it says in the book of Hebrews, he wants you to come boldly before the throne of grace and ask him for his help. So how do we faithfully wait on God when he feels far away? We complain, we request, and lastly, we trust And at this point in the psalm, the tone of things changes drastically. David turns and displays an active trust in God's promises. Now, if you look with me at verse 5, you'll see that the first two words there are, but I. These words are the most important words in this entire psalm. And the reason is, if you look at verses 5 and 6, you'll notice that nothing about David's circumstances have changed. He doesn't thank God for taking away his sorrow. He doesn't thank God for vanquishing his enemies. He thanks God, or he doesn't, rather, he, after complaining and asking God for help, he chooses to trust God despite his circumstances. And that word I there in the text, or in the original text, is an emphatic I. So what he's saying is, my enemies can do whatever they do to me, and no matter what the circumstances are, I choose to trust the promises of God. And it's not as if David now has more information than he did when he started writing the psalm. He knows that God is good and in control, but life on the surface doesn't reflect that. But notice David's prayer of lament is the vehicle that moves him from a place of despair to a place of trust. But what exactly does David's lament lead him to place his trust in. What is it that he trusts in? Look with me at verse five. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Now that word steadfast love in verse five is the Hebrew word that refers to God's faithful, committed love to his people. And in our culture, it's probably best if we focus on that word steadfast instead of that word love. You see, this isn't just God's general good feeling or disposition towards us. This isn't just a feeling that God fell into when he thinks about you. But just like a husband and wife committing to love one another on a wedding day, this word refers to God's committed love to come through for his people and to save them from sin and death no matter how hard it is. 
This is God's in sickness and in health till death do us part love. It refers to God's promises to make all things new no matter what it costs him. And David trusts in this love even though he doesn't see it fully realized in his life. And the people of God have always waited like David waited, waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises of love to be fully realized for his people. You see, after they sinned, Adam and Eve received the promise of a deliverer who would come and defeat evil, and yet all they saw in their day were evil kings who violently perpetuated evil. And so they trusted and they waited. God promised a great nation to Abraham, and yet he and his wife Sarah waited year after year after year for a child. Moses and the people of Israel groaned in Egypt, waiting to be set free from slavery. The people of Israel in exile in a foreign land waited for the day when God would bring them back and restore his kingdom to his people. They all waited for the day when God's until death do us part love was to be revealed in its fullness. And this love was finally made fully manifest at the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, as Jesus dies on the cross, hanging on that tree, we see God's ultimate committed love for his people displayed, a love that lays down his life for his people. It is a love that is literally till death do us part. As Jesus is dying on the cross, we see the heart of God's steadfast committed, faithful love to us. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know, love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. You see, the cross is the assurance that God's face is shining on you in love, even when you can't see it. And as we look back to the cross, we can know the love of God for us in the most difficult parts of life and cry out like the people of God from ages past, how long, O Lord? How long until you make what you revealed there fully realized in my life and fully realized in the world? And look at where all this culminates. This this joy in God's steadfast love and in his salvation. In verse six, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. See, even in the hardest moments, when we look back to the cross and see God's love for us assured, we can sing for joy because it reveals God's bounty towards us. And then that drives us to look forward to the day when he will come again and fulfill all of his promises to us. And in the meantime, we wait. Because of God's faithful love for us, revealed on the cross, we can trust him even when he feels far away because we know that he has come near to us and has died on a cross to save us. Let's return to that professor I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. Now, After that first day, uh, I was excited to have class with this guy. He just exposed his soul to a bunch of strangers uh, in a way that I had really never seen anyone do. Um, and that fascinated me, and I was excited to learn from this man. But because of the way my program was set up, it would be another two years till I got to have class with him. 
But one day in that first semester, I had class with him in lecture. He was talking about trusting the promises of God when life is hard. And he brought up his daughter again. And every night now, when he goes into his son's room before bed, they open the window and they look up at the moon. And now, when you look up at the moon, some nights you see a crescent shape. Some nights you see a full blazing moon. Some nights you see nothing at all. Now, at first, my professor had to teach his son about the science behind all this and how, you know, it's, it's about how the light reflects off of the moon and how we see it. But then every night, he would go into his son's room. They would open the window. They would look up at the moon. And he would ask his son, son, what's the moon look like tonight? And he would say, oh, it's a crescent. And he would say, okay, son, is the moon still round? And he would say, yeah, Dad, the moon's still round, even when we can't see it. Yeah, Dad, even when we can't see it. And then he would ask, son, is God still good even when we can't see it? And he would say, yes, Dad, God is still good even when we can't see it. Church, my encouragement to you this morning is that the moon is always round. Despite how the circumstances of your life may blur the view, despite how it may feel not only like there is no light reflecting off the moon, but that there are thick clouds blocking it from view as well, the moon is always round. And you can know that if you look to the cross that proclaims the truth that God is good even in the darkest moments. See, prayers of lament are the vehicle to keep us holding on to that truth despite the darkness of our life. Lament doesn't always end up with hands raised, dancing, triumphant worship. Some days it may take all of your strength just to utter the words of this psalm as a prayer to God. Our journey through sadness and disillusionment and grief and waiting is painful and every day looks different. But I pray that the words of lament and words of this psalm in particular would be a guide to help you see the love of God displayed on the cross and know that the moon is always round. Like that famous hymn says, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you enable us to pray through our weakness, to pray through our doubt, to pray through our questions and to give us hope in that. Lord, thank you that you have revealed your love to us on the cross of Christ, that we can know that you are good in all times, in all circumstances. Father, help us to trust that. Help us to be honest before you, to bring our thoughts and our emotions and our cares before you. Lord, even when we don't have words to utter them, may we trust the promise of Romans 8 that your spirit intercedes for us with groans too deep for words and you bring us before your throne 
You help us every step of the way there. And as we pray, you form us into people more and more who are able to see the truth of your steadfast love revealed in Jesus Christ. That you are always good. Help us to trust. Help us in our weakness. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.